Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Technology Innovation Series of the Maintenance Disrupted Podcast, where we try to take a look at the people and technology fueling Industry 4.0. I am your host, Blair Fraser, and on this episode, we are going to switch directions. And instead of looking at the technology, we're going to focus on the people and processes required to help bring these technologies in, and most importantly, get the desired value from them. In this week's episode of Technology Innovation Series, I talk with George Williams of Reliability X to get his thoughts and recommendations as a former reliability practitioner and now an advisor and consultant on what he has seen work and not work when companies bring in new technologies to help their maintenance and reliability initiatives. From developing the initial business case mapped to the company objectives to the behavioral changes required need to support and sustain these initiatives, George provides sound advice to anyone considering bringing new technology to their maintenance and reliability programs. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, but before we get into it, here's a quick note from our sponsors. Hello, everybody. This is Steve Doby here, one of your hosts of Maintenance Disrupted. If maintaining heavy equipment in BC and Alberta is part of your job, I'm excited to tell you about the fuel and lubricant supplier, Star West Petroleum. Having personally worked with Star West, I can tell you their service is unmatched and they are committed to saving you both money and downtime. Their service team learns your equipment and suggests ways to extend its life and overall perform better. I was in the throes of starting a new job at a large scale mine in BC, and we wanted to improve reliability quickly. One of our top issues was hydrocarbon management. And with the support of StarWest team, we were able to reduce our cost and ultimately chart a better path forward for our hydrocarbon management. My bosses were impressed, but I really can't take the credit. StarWest Petroleum did all the legwork. StarWest is a top-tier distributor of Phillips 66 lubricants, Tindall Performance Motor Oils, Phillips 66 Aviation Lubricants, Redline Synthetics, and Aspen Alkylate Fuel for Professionals. Also available from StarWest is clear and marked gasoline and diesel, heating and furnace oil, but really it's their customer service that stands out. For more information, go to starwestpetroleum.ca or send me an email and I will get you in contact with the StarWest team. You'll be glad you did, and so will your equipment. Now, here's your episode. Hey, George. Welcome to Maintenance Disrupted. Thanks for coming on the show today. Awesome, Blair. Thanks for having me. Good. And for our listeners, we have the George Williams on the show today. Um, George and I have it's been interesting. We joke for the last little bit. Um, we've obviously walked in the same community and I've often followed George around on all these webinars and things like that we've been doing. So we've had the pleasure of hanging out recently and having discussions on certain topics. And George, you openly brought up, well, Blair's had never had me on the podcast before. Right. <laughs> and um, I was thinking, this is very true because George is someone that obviously has a lot of knowledge, someone I look up to. And the reality was, I was thinking because my section of this podcast is focused on technology. And if you look at who I've had on the podcast to date, has been technology providers, right? People that are making the innovations and, and disruption in technology. But there's a huge part that I'm always missing. And, and it's, it's people like you that always bring this up is the people cultural fundamentals part of the technology. And I took it away from the last uh, webinar we were on, George, where we were having discussion on what kind of foundation do you need for technology? And you were bringing up a use case with someone 
that you're working with about, you know, slowly bringing technology on board and how to use it. And we actually brought up the point about training and how that's fundamental to come with the technology. Obviously you can't just, you know, what I call lob technology over the fence and expect it to work. So that's why I've reached out. I think you're going to bring a lot of insights into how we can leverage technology, but most importantly, how mature does an organization have to be? How do you bring new technology into an organization with different maturity levels and things like that? And, you know, if you're experienced as a practitioner, right, of actually owning assets now, helping other asset owners implement improvements and operational excellence, I think it's going to bring a lot of, lot of input into this. So I have to start, George, is when you start looking at technology, what's the first thing you look at when bringing a new technology into a, a plant? Or facility, the business need. Quite honestly, sometimes the organizations are are seeking Industry 4.0 without really knowing whether or not they need <laughs> Industry 4.0. Like it's shiny, you know. It's like the squirrel effect. You're going, oh, I'm literally that shiny thing. You know, let me go, right. go get that. Yep. So, so I think everything we try to do and try to bring from a value perspective. And this is no different now with clients versus when I was an asset owner and a practitioner has to be around the business value. You, you know, it, you see all these, these different organizations that uh, we're going to automate our packaging. We're going to automate this. We're going to, you know, we're going to put in a visual plant system and they're doing this blindly without understanding the opportunity, the business value or how it fits into their long-term goals as a company. What's, what's interesting is, the 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 long-term goals of the organization and the strategic path forward for a site whether it's in its master plan or in sales and marketing and what they're coming up with next all of those things have to drive the decisions on what either gets automated or what data is collected for potential improvements because let's face it, right? You could put in a visual plan, a SCADA system on a line that isn't really selling. Right. And and what's the value there, right? You don't necessarily need to improve its OEE. I, you know, obviously you can to gain some efficiency and labor and all that stuff, but you're not doing it to generate capacity that you're going to sell in that case. So understanding the business value that's going to drive the technology and what the need is from the business side is always my starting point. Okay. So you start with, you start with the business case. And when you link that, one of the challenges that we've had in reliability specifically, right. And, and, you know, there's a lot of aspects to operational excellence, right. Of, of, you know, what we were just talking about before we started recording this of, approving line efficiency and output and things like that. But specifically for maintenance reliability, the business case is not having failures, right? So one of the biggest challenges that I've seen is um, cost avoidance as your, as your business case, which often provides a, a challenge. And also us in maintenance and reliability, we might not get to, you know, the typical, um, you know, P and L statement or cost analysis with this type of thing. So how, how, how do you, as an individual, you know, as a, as a maintenance manager, maintenance technician, a reliability engineer, build a business case if you don't have a direct line to um, the cost or, or profit of that specific line you're working on? I, that's an awesome, awesome question. And it's an awesome question because it, it has, it actually has a fairly easy answer, but maybe not one that is, you know, on the top of everyone's head. Yeah. If your listeners go to 
www.insertyourcompanynamehere.com slash about us or slash about, they're going to see what their company goals are. They're going to see that the company has a commitment to its shareholders if it's publicly traded or to its investors. They're going to see a commitment to the environment. They're going to see a commitment to the community. They're going to see a commitment to safety. They're going to see a commitment to their employees. Each of those main goals or objectives of the company has a department responsible for achieving its objectives, whether it's finance or HR or safety, there's a group of people dedicated to hitting these goals. What you don't see on the About Us page are goals of maintenance. However, unlike many groups in the organization, when you go down through the list, many of the points, pretty much all of them, maintenance has a direct impact on. They have a direct impact on customer service or quality, a direct impact on financials, a direct impact on whether or not you have safety, you're hitting your safety goals because no one's more at risk than the maintenance organization on a regular basis. And so maintenance has a direct impact at all the company goals, but no specific goal tied to it corporately, right? Right. And so as a maintenance manager or maintenance supervisor or person responsible for reliability, your objective should be to communicate and talk to the people that run those groups. Make the person who's in, responsible for finance your best friend. Make the person in HR, you know, go talk to them on a regular basis about what their goals are and ask them how you can support those goals. Then when you start to understand those financials at the line level or what the HR goals are, you know what's really common, and not to get off too much on a tangent here, but HR usually has funding and goals for delivering training, and maintenance folks never put a training line item in their budget. Right. So when you talk to HR, they go, yeah, no, we got money. Right. <laughs> and when you talk to maintenance, they go, we never get any money for training. So it, it like be a little bit more forward with creating relationships with the heads of those departments to understand how you support that, that will help you cost justify and justify what it is you're trying to achieve on the maintenance and reliability side. Interesting. And that's a good point. That's something, you know, the about us is, um, you know, typically it's not one of the main tabs you have to find at the bottom of a website, right. To, to get there. And it is a little bit of the company tuning their own horn. And I think of it, well, I used to think of it until you just mentioned that as it's smoke and mirrors. This is what this, hey, you know, we're this big, huge organization and we're committed to safety and sustainability. I'm like, I just want my stuff cheap and on time, right? But the but it's interesting because I'm thinking about that and and as a, you know, former wrench turner, maintenance person is if you were looking for budget approval on some new technology, if, if you look at safety instances, we know they happen in these transient states when an when a piece of equipment is not running in this happy state, right? It's either starting up, shutting down, or outage from a maintenance perspective. And that's where the large majority of safety incidents have. So if you can avoid that and link it back to safety. And, you know, one of the things I've always found is if you link something back to safety, it's really difficult for people to say no. Or quality, depending on, you know, the type of manufacturing you may find yourself in. It's a very similar approach. And, and, and you're absolutely right. So if, if, if a, 
catastrophic failure creates an issue where you are four times more likely to be injured than when executing a PM or a planned job, then there's your driver. And there's plenty of white papers on that stuff that you don't have to try to invent the wheel here. And you can go back to your safety folks and say, hey, I, we do this, right? If we know ahead of time and implement some predictive technologies here, we can plan and schedule when a line is already down and reduce our potential safety incidents. Who from safety is not going to support that, right? So, right. And it's the same thing financially. If you can figure out what that cost of goods sold is at a particular line or what what the value of even if you're in a service industry let's say you're at a campus what's the value of lost research or lost area where the hvac system goes down finance has those types of things and if not try to pull some teeth because it, obviously sometimes that maybe not obviously sometimes that's a little bit more difficult because they might just spread costs across all the lines mm -hmm. but kind of simple finances try to get it down to a per line entity or per asset entity if you can. And if you can, then then that's an easy way to to start justifying those near misses or cost avoidances and 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 cost savings. So that's interesting. And it's it's funny you brought that HVAC example in the in a lab or university type setting is I, I spent a lot of time on campus energy uh, early in my career and we were having a planned outage and it fed a hospital. Um, in a Fed research center where a lot of R&D was being done. And it also fed, it also the utilities fed the climate control for the students that were staying on residence. And um, so I was going into a shutdown planning and looking at all the stuff we had to get done. And I remember not getting the stakeholders involved and just assuming, you know, okay, we got to tell the students they're going to get hot or cold, open your windows and obviously plan with the hospital because that's a big thing. And they could plan no planned um, surgeries for the day. But one thing I didn't understand was the financial impact was not those two the bigger risk was the r d and and the jokingly what they told me was the monkey that's been smoking cigarettes for the last 15 years has to be exactly at you know this temperature because it'll ruin the study for the last 10 years right um so not understanding where the financial impact and where the risk was was a huge mistake that i made early on yeah and and you know folks in those industries tend to go well i don't have a widget so i can't justify things it, that's not exactly true. It is certainly a little bit more difficult, but there is a value to that, um, a significant value to that. And you can do it as, as high level as our company invests X in R&D and has this profitability. That means R&D equates to a certain amount of profitability, right? And mm -hmm. it, it doesn't have to be you know, deep dive statistical analysis. You can make some assumptions. Right, exactly. Exact. And I think you have to. Right. Because in the, the day, we're not, you know, chartered accountants and things like that. Right. Like we're not going to get this exact mathematical equation on on savings. It is going to be a lot of assumptions at some point. Right. So what we see is, you know, you you build a business case, you get the hopefully the buy into to purchase technology or implement it. Um, I guess even before I was, was going to go into you know, how to start implementing that technology and where, but one of the biggest challenges is in specifically in my space is someone will buy some technology with the idea that this is going to help improve X, but even at that point when they bought it, they don't know where they're going to use it, right? There's a big, okay, now I have, now I got to figure it out. And I, the example I always give was I did a talk about, um, you know, coming from AI and IOT, I said, do not strap another sensor to a piece of equipment until you understand what you're trying to detect, what you're going to do with it, and all those kind of information. And a guy walked me up after the conference and said, 
that was fantastic. I wish I would have listened to you earlier. And I said, why? He goes, well, my boss just bought a thousand wireless sensors. And now I got to figure out where to put them, right? I'm like, well, your best case is hopefully you can send them back to the vendor and just pay a 10% restocking fee, right? That's going to be your best place. But where in the journey do you start selecting, you know, use any facility. There's going to be multiple pieces of equipment, multiple locations, functional locations. Where do you start? Is it, you know, in my opinion, this might not always be the most critical. It's where you can have the initial low-hanging fruit return on investment. Any any I, suggestions on that? So I, I, you're right. There, there should be an assessment of where the opportunity exists. And if you're in manufacturing, that's through a loss analysis. If you're in R&D, then it, it may be a deep dive into either your building automation system or your work order system to see where your where your biggest culprits are and which ones you know, service an area that, that is critical to the, to the facility. Understanding that will help you tailor what it is you're trying to achieve and tailor not just what sensors, but <clears throat> what types of sensors, what, what data are you going to collect? Right. And I'm a big fan of the, of saying, look, I can always choose to use, you know, not use data I've collected but I can never choose to use data I didn't collect. collect. Right. That being said, you know, sensors, while they're getting cheaper and cheaper, are still not free. So you still have to evaluate what, where it is and what information you're trying to ascertain. I think one of the biggest challenges that I see in the technology side of things when it comes to maintenance and reliability is, is that we're still trying to achieve uptime for the sake of the asset and not uptime for the sake of the business. And so hmm. we're looking at, we look at putting PMs in for the sake of the app because it's an asset. And we're still trying to drive that mentality. We think in that mentality. We don't think what our business had on. And I, I think if we make a slight shift in that, that kind of helps direct where should I be using these technologies? What's important to the business? And what's interesting is the business doesn't know what's important to the business. We think they do, but manufacturing thinks that, you know, this production line that I always need is the most important asset. Meanwhile, I got an air compressor that services all of your production lines. So they don't actually know. So it, my, my comment isn't to listen to the business. It's to use your business hat to determine which assets are most critical and have the most value to the business. Exactly. And I think that comes out and I'm sure you've facilitated and been through a lot of these, these criticality assessments and you bring the different stakeholders in the room and it's literally, everyone has a different opinion of what is critical. <laughs> right. And I love it. Right. And it's, it's the fantastic thing because people start saying, no, mine's more critical. Mine's more critical. So this, 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 and you start working your way back to those critical facilities that of course feed everything in production. Right. Yeah. Um, I, and I think there's other considerations too. Like, you know, where's the information going to go and, and what I, what infrastructure already exists from a systems management or information management standpoint, all those things kind of impact, you know, what types of sensors, whose system am I going to buy if it's a proprietary system versus just getting dumped into some data historian, you know, how's right. it all going to function? And, and in many cases, the folks that are practitioners or maintenance managers, they're not really experts in that arena. And so they get a vendor, they come in and the vendors selling them their software with the analysis. And that's great for a one-time thing, but now you're either in bed for that same software and all those sensors. And that's not really a great strategy either, right? So th there's gotta be a balance between 
where's that data going to go? And is it going to be available five years from now, 10 years from now? What if we choose a different vendor for sensors? Exactly, what if yeah. technology changes? You know, a, a lot of considerations there. And unfortunately, you know, it, well, I guess fortunately enough, folks can listen to your podcast and, and, and talk to your organization about strategies associated with that. Um, because you can make mistakes. You can make really, really big mistakes by, by being locked into something. Right. And I think we, and I'll speak as, because uh, I'm a vendor now as well. And, and, you know, there's everyone I think is realizing that, okay, no, it's your data. You can export it at any time, but what's that format going to be? What am I going to do with that data? I'm just going to store it here. And like, if I need the proprietary software to even look at that data, I just have these random files that are no good. Like it's, it's becoming very, very interesting. In fact, all everything that I've read, you know, is we started to see this onset of SaaS. So um, solutions as a service, software as a service, you know, you pay me 15 bucks a month and all your data is here. And then if you stop and you, all that thing, and, you know, I think more and more end users are starting to push back from SaaS, which I think is good. SaaS has a purpose and believe me, like it, it's, it's valuable if you want someone else just to manage that for you. Right. But there's also, you know, a platform as a service where you still have access to the platform, but you're paying in, in the day. And I, I have to address this as well on my side is data storage does cost money no matter where you're storing it so if we're going to store for you there's going to be a price with that but at least giving people the option if you already have a database you want to put this data into right and it's interesting because being on the side being on the ai i've always been out there saying the world doesn't need another platform we have enough platforms already and that's really what industry 4.0 is trying to connect these dots and platforms together right yeah. um, but the last thing and this is my next question to you is you know, we've seen it, we've seen it for decades is new technology coming into a facility with a lot of high hopes. We're going to be able to do this, this, and you go back a year later and still sitting on the shelf or, Hey, have you used it? Ah, oh, no. So what have you seen from that point of view of, of, you know, that technology adoption, once a new technology gets into the facility. Now I know this is preloaded because we talked about it in our last podcast, but you know, what, what would you recommend if someone's bringing a new technology in? what are the next steps they need to do to start implementing this? So it, just like any other expectation, there is a resource requirement for its ongoing utilization and value proposition. And that kind of is where the ball drops, right? So they'll, they'll bring in a system, whether it's wireless sensors or SCADA or whatever, whatever technology they're bringing in to kind of manage the line, so to speak, or identify opportunity but maybe they, they don't have the person dedicated to analyzing that data and they're still relying on the operations supervisor to, to perform that function and that, that may not be the right position. Mm -hmm. in, in addition to that, there's administrative workload that takes place in these software solutions. It's not just plug it in and walk away and it tells me what to do, although they're getting better at that. <laughs> um, it's not quite there yet. So no. there is some administrative work too. So who's going to do all those things? And then I think the biggest drop of the ball is, you know, if you've not had any technology and you've got these older lines and you're now going to apply sensors and figure out either from a maintenance reliability perspective, what issues exist, or from an operational perspective, what losses exist, but you don't train people in what does, how do I tackle that? So I know I've got a problem that's recurring in a motor how do I solve it? How do I get down to root cause and make the problem go away? Just telling me faster that I have a problem that keeps recurring every three months isn't helping my business. It helps a little bit, 
but making it go away from not happening every three months is a bigger value. And so I think the ball gets dropped in, in not supporting what the expectation is. The expectation isn't just no ahead of time. You still have to make the defect go away. Eventually. Yeah. You want it to get rid of it, engineer it out. And the only way is literally to, to make those proactive changes. Right. And that's what I often say in the world of IOT. Now we're, we're racing who can detect a problem at the earliest, which is good, but it's still a problem, right? If you just keep on doing the same thing over and over again, then, you know, you're not going to address that problem. And so what you were talking about, and I completely agree is, you know, making sure that training and, and, and what I would link it to is the why. So a lot of the times we'll get, you know, a, um, a management level purchase our equipment and say, okay, come train my techs. And we'll get introduced saying, hey, you know, this is Blair. He's going to train you on these new tools. But they don't understand what they're trying to accomplish with it. That why is missing. And they just sit there and they glaze over, right? And I'll give you an example. We just sold a product to someone where they, you know, a higher up attended a webinar like, this is great. We're never going to over lubricate our bearings again if we use this. We start training the technicians and they're like, we don't have any time to do this. Like, we, we don't. We're never going to get to this. Right. So I had to go back to the first. I'm like, you want your refund? Like, I'm cool with that because it ain't going to work. Right. You still need buy in. You still need this. Right. They don't understand the why of right. why we're trying to do it. Yeah. And it 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 happens all over. It even happens at the basic CMMS implementations. I think companies rely way too much on the vendor to have experience on the on the why. And that doesn't it, let me. Let me clarify that. There are a lot of people who work for vendor companies who understand the why that came out of being practitioners. But there's also a lot of folks that are either just salesmen or they only know that tool. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, a lot of organizations rely on, you know, the, the it, let's just take a CMMS, for example, the, you know, the vendor will come in and the company's going to say, okay, well, we need some work order types and they'll be like emergency. And, you know, the vendor's telling them to make emergency a work order type. And then suddenly they get emergency in their system as a work order type where they got five sites and each site defines their own. And now you have terrible analytics, but the vendor doesn't understand all that, right? The vendors, the, the, what can the system do? And how can I solution the question you asked me? Not, not necessarily the business use of it or how to do the analytics later. So I wouldn't rely on solely on the vendor to give you the best advice on how to set it up from a business perspective. You should definitely get, if you don't have that internally, get some uh, external help uh, to make sure that you have the capability to use it effectively and that it's set up for success. And if your folks don't have time to change automatic lubricators, but I, 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 my guess is they weren't lubricating at all before because that shouldn't be too much of a difference in, in changing things. <laughs> you know, even, you know, even things as basic as, as, you know, data collection that's happening manually, whether it's through, you know, a UE ultra probe or, or, or some other technology, companies fall short on removing the physical tasks that existed prior to using the technology. And so they think they're adding work, not replacing work. And so it, they'll still take coupling guards apart, even though they're collecting vibration readings right. on a pump. 
And so, it, you know, a lot of organizations fall short because they're not actually removing the work that that technology is expected to replace. So now they just added additional work. In most cases, <laughs> the, the technician is going to see that like they just I'm getting paid the same and expected to do more in my eight hour period. Right. So exactly. they haven't addressed the why properly. Um, yeah. So when you one thing I've I've always respected is when a vendor and you think about no matter how big or small the product is, right, is the concept of providing training. And I think that's kind of a standard now is, oh, yeah, you know, we'll give you an overview of it. But one thing I've come to realize is us as, um, I was going to call ourselves adults, but I don't know if I can call myself truly an adult here, but but uh, um, the, the reality is we suck at learning. We like we're we're past our prime. We're not very good at, at or retaining knowledge anymore. And you look at how we we learn is, you know, we'll still say, well, here's a manual. Here's a quick video on how to use it, right? And you give, for example, PDM technologies. You know, here's a video of how to use this specific technology. But if you're not experiencing that failure right then, you're not going to learn it, right? So one thing we've tried to do in our organization is there's the initial training. Here's the unit. Here's a PowerPoint on. Here's the, which is what the power button does. And this is how you turn it on and off. And those basic things, right? Where everyone's in a room, but we tell all of our guys that are doing this training to get out. It's called our smart start program to get out in the field, right? Is we're trying to teach a man to fish instead of giving him the fish, right? Is we're out in the field. You want to do steam traps? We're going to do your steam traps, right? And we're going to come back and we're going to do bearings, right? And actually, because the first time when you actually listen to a bearing, if we can't find one in your facility, that's, bad which that's probably a bad example there's always going to be a bad bearing but if you've never heard it you've only heard it in a powerpoint right because you might have other noise around your facility is going to sound a little bit different right that's where we got to get to and I, I call that the mentorship part of it right there's the training part and there's the mentorship if you have someone in your organization that's already experienced that can do that mentorship great but you are going to rely on someone to to truly do a mentorship just like you would as an apprentice, right? Is to go through this. This is how you're going to use this technology. Yeah, I think, you know, un unfortunately, learning and knowledge are a lot like those. You ever see the the posts people put, like if water was dripping into bucket number one and it's got- Oh, yeah. <laughs> I spend way too much plate, time right? on those. Way too much time. So knowledge is the first one and under it is ego. And unless you plug knowledge, ego fills first. And so what tends to happen is people learn things, but it fills the ego bucket, not the knowledge bucket. <laughs> they do get the knowledge, but it's right. filling the ego bucket. And until they plug that <laughs> and make that go away, their experience trumps anything you have to say, unless they gain experience, right? And that's why, that's why all the, you know, the, the different, um, approaches to knowledge and goal setting and all talk about gaining experience in order to create behaviors. You got to give experience to create behaviors, behaviors become, um, hmm. you know, consistent. So, and, and that, that's not any different, whether it's a new technology or any other training or learning, these folks have a lot of experience, whether it's one year of experience, 35 times or 35 different years of experience, <laughs> they see it the same way. And so when we come in and we say, hey, there's a better way, you, you better believe we get pushed back. It, mm -hmm. Like, absolutely. Like, it, think of it, like my organization comes in and we assess your plant and we tell you, you can double your throughput on a line and you're the 
operations manager at the plant. You're the GM at a plant. I mean, what does that tell your leadership team about you? If, if that opportunity right. exists in your plant. So you don't, A, you don't want to believe it. B, you refuse to believe it. <laughs> and C, you don't want to hear anything about it anymore, right? Like, so it, that's not different than you coming in and saying, hey guys, you're not taking care of your bearings. Listen to them. You're, they're not being lubricated, right? I've got a tool for you. They don't hear I've got a tool for you. They hear you don't know how to lubricate. That's right. And so you have to approach them differently than listen to this thing. It's a piece of crap. If you had my cool tool, you could lubricate it using ultrasound. While you're right, what you're saying to them is you don't know how to lubricate a bearing. That's what they hear. And you've been doing it right? wrong for 35 years, right? Right. Look so at all, yeah. Right. So what you've got to say to them is look, you've been, you know, whether they've been doing a good job or not, you've been doing what you can with the tools that you have. What I'm suggesting is let's take a listen to this and see if it can do an even better job than you've already done. And, and that's a different way for people to hear something. And, you know, sometimes we suffer from knowledge as well on the consultancy side, right? I've spent a lot of years as a practitioner. So when I come in and I tell you, put you in your place, it's, it's cause I've, I've learned all that, but at the same time, it's not the right approach. Right. And, and I've got to set, I've got to, eliminate the knowledge I've learned and try to try to put myself in other people's shoes when I talk to them. Yeah. And I think what I really hovered on there, George, was, was brilliant about changing behaviors, right. Is, is really what you're trying to do and, and getting someone to, to do something different is the biggest challenge of any leader in or any organization, right. Is to yeah. do something different. And it's actually, uh, one thing that I wish I would have read earlier in my career of, of reliability, because reliability is about change. It's really changing the way you're maintaining, operating your assets and things like that is there's a, there's a recent book called Atomic Habits, which talks about, um, you know, making that behavioral change where actually where it becomes a habit. And, you know, there's the old saying, I forget, like 28 days of doing something consistent with some, and then 45 days, it becomes more of a habit. But this goes into depth into the into the science part of it. And it talks about habit stacking and things like that. And it's a very interesting read. Now I'm looking at that, as you mentioned it. And it's funny, I just read that book about a month ago and I never connected it with anything we're doing. It was more on my personal, I got to get out. I got to work out in the morning and stuff right, like right. that. Right. Um, stop eating potato chips at night, but it, it's actually interesting. And I never, I've never linked it to that behavioral change part um, of these new technologies coming in. Cause you are asking someone to do something differently and inadvertently you can, put that image that they were doing it incorrectly or uneducated or or doing it wrong but they were just using as you said the tools they had and the knowledge they had at that time that's right but they don't it, it, it all depends on how you communicate it right i mean and and like i said we suffer from knowledge sometimes we come in with our experience let me tell you how it is <laughs> right well yeah i got yeah exactly and we're just so used to doing that though right and and the reality is you know, as asset owners and practitioners, and I'll openly admit now I'm on the focusing my attention right now on the lubrication side, like early in my career, I jokingly say I should go back to the people I used to employ me and apologize for all the bearings I probably killed in their facilities, right? So <laughs> I was I was that guy, I just kept on squeezing, it came out the other end, I'm like, ah, did that back grease come out, right? And I walk away, right? Um, but I didn't know any better at the time. I that's well, literally, you get the water out of it. <laughs> well, that's exactly it, right? And honestly, the, the the PM I got would say lubricate bearing, right? As a young apprentice, I go out there and go, 
okay, right? And I grabbed the closest. Why would you think more is not good, right? I mean, exactly. Yeah. Why would that be the case, right? Well, my, 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 honestly, my mindset was like, oh, I'm going to have to do this again next month. So I got to, right? And this was a long weekend or something. Like, I'm going to give it a few extra shots just to make sure it's really good. (laughs) It's like tightening a bolt, right? I'm going to give it a little extra oomph just to make sure that never comes off, right? Look, and, and you've got to, those changes, and I know our conversation is geared towards technology, but, that's not any different in that space. The use of information for an operator or an operation supervisor versus, you know, waiting for the unit to have recurring issues or constant minor stops is something new for them. To go to a computer terminal and look at the OEE Pareto chart and see what the problems are is new for them. And so you've got to approach that the same way. It's not that you were a terrible supervisor. We operated with what the information we had. Now we're suggesting there's another way for you to get information to make you even better than you were yesterday. And and we've got to communicate it in that way. Right. And you have to, you know, use that operation supervisor that that person has to focus on what they know right now. It's almost, they have to have these blinders by design right? Is these are the fires I'm fighting. This is what I know. And this is what I'm doing. So often it does require, and we see this in organizations when new people come in, you know, quote unquote, the shiny penny and things like that, because they can see things that they haven't been entrenched in. So they can see things around and vendors can bring that experience and share what, what we've seen in other facilities and things like that. Well, by the way, you know, we've had a lot of success or here's something to look out for that we've seen, right? We're not essentially, you know, there's somewhat stigmatism around vendors and trying to sell more yes i mean but even the company manufacturing that we're trying to support is trying to sell more that is the goal but we're trying to do it um with purpose most of the time so one of the questions i got for you george is you know there's obviously different levels of maturity and i'll use the smrp pillars or it doesn't really matter these these foundations that build up maintenance reliability and now asset management programs right so there's this fundamental pillars and you know no one is going to be, at least I haven't seen it, perfect on all these pillars, right? Is there, in your opinion, some kind of gut check or checklist you can do around maturity of an organization in maintenance and reliability before you bring technology in? And the example I'll give is, you know, I've seen it and I've seen it on, particularly on the AI side is, and I warn people is when you start doing predictive technologies, you're going to find things. It might not be what you were searching for, but you're going to start finding things, are you prepared to act on what you find, right? Do you have the resources, the, the, the skills to properly plan these, what you're going to find? If you're looking for leaks, you're going to find them. If you're looking for bad bearings, you're going to find them. You're going to find other things when you're looking for bad bearings. So do you, do you have any recommendations on that fundamental knowledge that's required before implementing technology? Oh, I think you bring up a really good point. And, and that's, true whether you're going through a planning and scheduling effort and a CMMS and trying to make sure people account for their time, or you're doing a PM optimization, or you're moving to predictive maintenance, there's an expectation that there's a hump there that you got to get over before you get on the other side of it. And unless you're, unless you've experienced it, or a vendor tells you it, you probably don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, if you think about it, you know, what's going to happen, but you're probably not communicating to your leadership team that year one, I, we might spend a little bit more money because we've got a lot of stuff to fix. I, from a maturity perspective, I honestly, we have our own assessment. I don't care whose assessment you use. 
and, and I was never really a big fan of the assessment process. However, it does give you directionally correct information. It's not going to be precise. And I think if your expectation of it is precision, you'll be disappointed every time. What it does give you though, if it is broad spectrum enough, is a general idea of where your opportunities lie. I think where the assessment process fails us is that most organizations have a recipe on the backside of it. If you were low here, here, and here, this is the recipe. And I'm here to tell you there's no recipe. <laughs> Well, what we tend to do is then look at those opportunities and we work with the customer on what adds value and what we call simplicity. So for example, every one of these assessments is going to say, do you have an asset management master plan or whatever, right? A SAMP if you're using the ISO 55,000 uh, terminology. And if it's a gap, they're going to go, well, you need one. You, you got to have a SAMP. Okay, that's great. And what's the value of a SAMP? Where's the direct value to my business when I'm bleeding on the backside? But every one of them is going to say you need a, a strategy first. But not necessarily. If I'm bleeding air everywhere, I don't need a strategy on my SAMP. Thank you, George. Thank it, you for saying, I couldn't agree more. In addition to that, we look at simplicity because getting a SAMP together and approved could be really easy in one organization and really hard in another. And so what we do is we work with them on what's easy and adds value. And that's your new strategy. <laughs> and if it includes a SAMP, great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But let's start here because you're bleeding this stuff and it's easy to close the gaps. So I, you know, and I don't care what, whose methodology they use, just make sure you work through what adds value immediately and what does not. I think that's brilliant because a lot of the times the boat can be sinking and you're trying to plug a small hole. It's going to take a lot of time where you can quickly patch up another hole to, to, to see that results. And what I say is you might get, you know, in any of those pillars or, or fundamentals we're talking about, you know, you can get up to 75% and the level of effort and cost to get it to 80% might be substantial. Whereas to get another pillar, up to 50% is going to be a lot easier, quicker, and more cost-effective, right? Doesn't yeah, mean I mean, it, you're absolutely right. I mean, if the boat is sinking, you're not trying to build a bigger net to catch fish. <laughs> That's right. The boat but is going down. Let's I patch see, the holes first. I, and I see this on the IoT side because, you know, the, everyone's going to recommend, and specifically from the bigger consulting firms, you know, you have an IoT strategy data governance practice in place. And I agree, but if you look at those and you know, you look at some of the big consulting firms that'll create those, those are six figure documents, right? That are gonna, and they are, they're fantastic because me as a vendor, I can make sure that we fit into those guidance of who, you know, how long do you keep data, who has access to it, all those type of things, right? Because there's a lot of concern when, when data goes out there, specifically intellectual property, I think that's great. But fundamentally that can, that involves a lot of resources, a lot of time. And if you're just, you know, in my, my world, you're trying to monitor a bearing. Typically there's no intellectual property. So, you know, what I'd recommend is, and, and, you know, we've created them, but we've, we've, we've seen these from a lot of good um, partners we work with is, you know, here's the basics. Do I control the data? Do I have ownership of this data? Do I have access? Can I get like all those type of things, right? And there's just fundamentally need to ask, and you can get into the GDPR stuff and all those other stuff from a data perspective later, because this is going to solve an immediate need, right? As long as it 
fits into a bigger picture down the road, right? Those strategies work great for billion dollar a year companies and above. Right. There's a vast majority of manufacturing companies in this country and abroad that are 500 million a year and less. They've got a handful of IT people. Most of them couldn't put a SharePoint site together to save their life, let alone build a strategy for IIoT. Exactly. They're going to ask the vendor what hardware they need. They're going to decide if they're going to house the database on premise or in the cloud. They're going to make basic decisions and rely on the vendor to do everything else. Yeah. And so it, you're right. Like, like why focus and, and, and take those resources that are already limited in a company like that and have them focus on this big, long strategy when you know the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to find opportunity and improve. And do we really need a strategy if we're, you know, if our OEE is at 50%, do, do I really need a, stra- a long-term strategy? Eventually I do, but I don't need it to stop the bleeding. Right. And you, you can do two things in parallel, right? You can stop the bleeding and work on that strategy and learn from, <laughs> no learn from stopping the bleeding and put that in your strategy, right? Well, and if you're not sure if you can, then everybody that's in maintenance and reliability should quit because they all inherited a, a facility that already had assets. That's right. Most of them didn't greenfield into their position. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. You weren't there from the inception, right? right? Not too many, not too many maintenance reliability people got to put their input in before that asset was even purchased, right? That's correct. Yeah, exactly. And the other um, and the reason I'm asking you this is because I know for a fact one of the clients you're working with is implementing technology and you've been done a great job of you know operational excellence and bringing more throughput through their facility. And to do that, I'm sure technology has a part in it, is we're starting to see the numbers and it hasn't changed in the last three years around, um, you know, pilot purgatory and getting out of scaling. These, these new technologies and specifically IoT have a tendency not to scale, right? I'm just curious from your point of view, from being a practitioner now working with clients, what do you see as some of the challenges to scaling these types of technology? Well, that's a really tough question. So um, it shouldn't be that difficult if they're, you're talking about from pilot to, to everywhere else across the, the facility. That's right. I think the challenge they have is this, they're not actually taking action with the information. So they're not seeing the value. So they don't reinvest the scale across everything else. Infrastructurally, it's really simple because if, it, especially if it's SaaS, if it's SaaS, you move a slider and have more space, right? Um, and, and you just add as many data points as you want. I, I don't necessarily think it's a, and I could be way off because I'm not as close to this as you are. My guess is that the issue is future further expansion of adoption, not can I scale it? Right. No, I, I agree. And I think what I see is the business case. So, you know, we talked about the first thing you need to do is build that business case, build the value of where it's going to fit in is just because the business case worked for one section of a plant doesn't mean the other or, and we have seen it, we've had success in one facility of a multinational corporation where they just killed it. And other people like, no, that's, we don't have those same problems, right? So this cookie cutter approach is, you know, you might have a world-class lubrication program doing route-based and you're successful at it. And you can have a facility that never invested in anything. And when you're already over lubricating, it's very easy to get the return on investment and things like that, right? So what works for one doesn't always work for all. You can be, you can be outstanding 
from a maintenance and reliability perspective and have no CMMS working on paper. It's so true. Technology doesn't create your success. It, it enables it, it helps it, it, it makes it more efficient, more effective in terms of the information you have, but you could be a talent reliant organization and see great success. So I think the adoption piece when it comes to, can I expand to other businesses is to find out why they're having success without it and then leverage that understanding because if they're talent reliant, um, that's not a good place to be. Somebody gets hit by a bus or promoted or something like that. And suddenly that goes right out the window, right? Right. Trying to create long-term sustainability. You can't do that when you're talent reliant. Exactly. Exactly. So a few of the key takeaways I took from this, George, I think is brilliant is first of all, when you're, when you're looking at technology, obviously building that business case. And I really like that idea of linking it to an overall corporate or company objective they're trying to, there has to be, I think in the asset management world, the aim, the, the, the link between what you're trying to do, even as small as small piece of technology or change coming in, how do you link that back to those objectives that the company's trying to get? Right. And that's going to help you, I think, many folds over as you try to get out of that pilot and scale it across the organization. If it's linked to it, then it, you have more likely to have success. Right. And the other part for me is, you know, that, that obviously the training aspect of it, the, the mentorship, but making that behavioral change. And I think one mistake that we can make specifically now with technology more so than ever, we can move the cheese too far, if you will. Right. We can just, nope, you're never going to, you never have to leave your office again. You never have to go to the plant because we're going to have all the data in here you'd ever need. Right. And to go from someone that used to walk the plant 24 seven to just looking at a screen is not going to work. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think we can have a danger of, of moving that cheese too far. Then of course it's never, it's never going to work. Right. Awesome. Good. Um, so George from Reliability X, thank you for coming on here. Where could the uh, audience reach out to you, get more information on what you're doing or some of these Checklist. They can connect to us on LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. They can go to www.reliabilityx.com. Uh, if they want to speak directly, they can dial one eight seven seven rlbltyx Oh, nice. <laughs> That's sweet. Um, and you do have something coming up here that I think I'm going to attend. You mentioned something you're going to do, start doing some stuff on uh, YouTube live. Yeah, um, we're actually going to try to do a weekly stream of pretty much me um, or anyone in our company doing their daily work. So this week, our first, um, our first stab at this is going to be a live session where we're creating a, a storeroom reorder point analysis file. So we have an extract of storeroom parts and our utilization and all the POs. Uh, we're actually going to combine all that stuff in Excel and add all the columns, do all the, all the formulas and create a reorder point analysis that will then tell you how many should I have on the shelf? When should I be reordering it? And when I reorder it, what should I be, you know, how many should I be ordering, uh, including safety stock considerations. And then this is exactly what we were talking about earlier is you, you could go into a client and you could do this all day, right? You know this, but in the day, your job is to make your clients more successful and more sustainable in doing it. So instead of, you know, giving your clients a fish, you are literally, and I, I applaud this for trying to do it live because <laughs> anytime you're doing anything live, right? There's always chances of something 
uh, messing up, but you're, you're really going to invest in them understanding and learn how to do it themselves. That's the goal. I, quite honestly, I don't want to build reorder point analysis files for a living. There you go. <laughs> I want to go. I want to go improve your operation. So, and, and we, we still, we still do provide these services, but I, I think it's important for folks that are in this industry to a share their knowledge with others. And I think it's important for folks that um, are looking to expand that knowledge to have a, a means to do that. And so, it, you know, this is more about giving back to the industry. It's more about, you know, why pay a vendor for a template? They're going to charge you $5,000 for it. And they've done it a thousand times. I think that's a load of crap. We're going to change. We, we want to change that paradigm. Good for you. Good for you. I support it. So what I'll do is I'll put that, um, that link out um, to our audience. And I'm, I'm assuming since it's YouTube live, there'll also be a recording of it and they can watch it if they're not live. Um, so we'll put that out. So, um, and uh, we'll continue to do that for anything you put out on a weekly basis that I think might be of value to our audience. So thank you, George. Thank you for not going with the flow of typical consultancies. Um, we all appreciate that. Uh, and thank you for sharing your knowledge and coming on this podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Blair. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Hey, well, I hope you enjoyed the sit down with George Williams. We tried to cover as much as we could in the hour period. Of course, we didn't get to everything. So we'll likely have George back uh, sharing his knowledge and experience as a regular contributor to the podcast. And I would invite you, as George mentioned, he is doing a live YouTube session coming this Tuesday, which would be Tuesday, May the 4th. Um, may the 4th be with you. I guess I had to put that joke out there. Um, so yeah, we invite you to take a look at that. And also if you yourself or um, a company you know has an exciting technology or even a way of implementing new technology or some case studies you would like to share, we invite you to reach out to us. We would love to have you on the podcast to share this knowledge, this exciting technology or your experience. So please do reach out to us. We would love to have you on the show. Until next week, have a great and safe week.